My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I've spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. And we're live. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD Podcast. This week in the studio, a guest with 31 years of service to this country in the United States Navy. His certifications include, but are not limited to, surface warfare specialist, search and rescue swimmer, submarine dolphins, special boat teams, and is a Navy SEAL that has assignments with SEAL Teams 3, 1, Naval Special Warfare Group, and the Special Operations Command. He has combat deployments to Baghdad, Fallujah, Ramadi, Haditha, Al-Assad, and Columbia. My guest since retiring has worked with the Honor Foundation and the Warriors and Whiskey Club, an organization that partners with various veteran charities and veteran-owned businesses that are dedicated to improve our veteran community. And after all those years of service, we're going to hear the true story of what a career like that does to you mentally and physically. It's my pleasure to introduce you to Tim Fedrick. What's going on, my friend? Uh, not much, DJ. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, I am so happy that you're here and, and you have such a long and illustrious career that we have so much to talk to. But I think the first question I want out, and it's a really off the wall one, how great is the movie Navy SEALs? <laughs> well, looking back <laughs> on it now, you know, and I get a lot of crap because, uh, you know, people say, are you kidding me? That's why you came in. And uh, in 90, you know, I, I had... Not, I didn't know much at all, if anything, about uh, Naval Special Warfare and uh, the SEAL teams. And uh, I was dead set on going to small school baseball there in East Tennessee. And then right after I graduated in 1990, I, uh, the summer, uh, that movie came out with Charlie Sheen, Michael Biehn, went and saw it. I'm like, that'd be a really cool job, you know? But, but nothing before that. I haven't heard anything, but... You know, like I said, I get a lot of crap for saying that I came in for that movie. I'm sure my friends that hear this will get on to me again, but uh, but it's the truth. Well, I'm telling you, I fell in love with that movie when I saw it. I still try to convince people to this day that it's one of the greatest action movies ever made. A lot of people don't believe me. But let's go back. Let's talk about your childhood for a little bit. You were born in Mississippi, but you were raised in a couple of different states. So if we can talk about kind of your upbringing, what kind of set you on this path? Because you didn't really know about the Navy SEALs and stuff, but was your family military family? Was it law enforcement oriented, first responder oriented? And what kind of just set you down that path? Well, um, I was born in Natchez, Mississippi, grew up in Faraday, Louisiana, home of uh, Mickey Gilly, Jerry Lee Lewis, and Jimmy Swaggart, by the way. And uh, so I grew up there playing sports. My dad was in the Army for a short period and then went into the National Guard. Um, didn't really have any connections growing up to the Navy. Uh, I definitely had some connections to my dad's buddies that was all in the Army and in the National Guard specifically. But, uh, uh, but really, just sports, whether it be summer league ball, 
uh, fall football. And then once I got into school and uh, in a grade uh, high enough to where they had those sports programs available, that was where my focus was, football and baseball mainly. So with your dad being in the Army and then going to the National Guard, was it was it talked about in your house, really, of you having a military career or him kind of pushing you down that path? No, absolutely not. I think, it, if anything, it would have been the opposite. He would be <laughs> pushing me down the sports path because he was big into sports as well. And, um, and, and from the time I could see a television or listen to a radio, you know, I'm um, still to this day I do that. You know, if there's a ball game on and I'm not working, then, uh, then I'm, I'm tuning into the ball game. And if I'm overseas and all I have is the radio, I'll still tune in with the radio. But no, I'd say just the opposite. It's, um, he, uh, he, you know, I, I can't say he had a bad time in the uh, military, but, uh, he just didn't talk about it much. Our focus was in the sports world. Your relationship with him, I'm guessing, uh, with how you talk about him, it was a close relationship. Yeah, you could say that. Me and my brother was uh, close. We spent a lot of time uh, with our aunt, and uh, he traveled a good bit with the military when I was real young, you know. So so we would just go to our aunt there in Clayton, Louisiana, and uh, hang out and uh, play ball and uh, go run around the golf course there in uh, Faraday. But um, other than that, he, I'd have to say growing up small, he was traveling all the time as, as most of us did often in the military. Right. Well, with all that and with him not really pushing you down that path. Now I hear that you were looking at scholarships to go to college and that was what was really kind of keeping you on the border of whether you were going to go military, whether you were going to go to college was if these kind of sports, uh, scholarships came through for you. Yeah, I had some small school uh, scholarships, uh, Cumberland College, Warren Wilson, and uh, so forth. Um, but but until I saw that movie, you know, even if even if something would have happened with uh, a scholarship uh, and nothing happened, I, I don't guess I got far enough into that process. I saw that movie. I went to the recruiter station in uh, Knoxville, Tennessee, not long after that. And uh, ended up joining. I came in under the Die Fair program, which was a six-year commitment. I was convinced that you probably should just do four. If you like it, you can always do more. You can get more bonus money that way. So, so it was a path that wasn't straight in the buds for me once I did get in. So I had to go into the fleet. Uh, that's where I got my surface warfare pin. Um, and I can't say that I was happy at the time. I went to the USS Arleigh Burt, the pre-commissioning unit. I was part of Maine crew, and then we also had Virginia crew. And there was very few of us up in Maine, and as an E-2, maybe even an E-1, I, I think an E-2, I had a, a very small place to clean, space to clean, I should say. You couldn't touch anything on the ship. So all I did was work out, get ready for SAR school, went to SEER school up in Maine. Uh, and uh, just prep for budge from that point on. And uh, the operations officer, he was real uh, flexible with me. He's like, hey, we need a SAR swimmer. You can use this as a stepping stone to get into budge. And um, <laughs> he left about two years into that tour, so it extended mine out a little bit when the new ops <laughs> officer would go in. 
But uh, but in hindsight, you know, I can, I have to say that it was probably the best thing for me. I was young. I was straight out of high school. I didn't know much. Uh, and uh, in looking back, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Although for the people that knew me back then, they're probably like, huh, this guy, he just, he don't want to be here. He wants to be somewhere else, you know? And, uh, and my friends, they probably had to deal with a little bit of that, but, uh, but they understood. I had some close friends still talk to, to this day, uh, that was on there with me, a number of them. And, uh, um, so they're still there for me if I need them and, uh, vice versa. And I, I, like I said, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Well, I think it's, I, I think it's interesting. A couple of the things that you say, uh, you, you said that they were very flexible with you. They gave you kind of that background, which I don't think, and I think you would agree that you would get a lot of places. They would be more concerned about the job you're doing for them, not about what you want to do in the future. So one, you got that Two, you got to try out different things like search and rescue swimmer and all these different things to make sure that your head was right for where you were about to go. And I've heard you say numerous times that being on that ship and doing the service warfare and being the radio man, that that really is a good memory of your life in the Navy and that you think it set you down that path and really got you prepared for what was getting ready to come at you. Yes, uh, definitely. As I got more senior enlisted wise and then later as an officer, I could always tell the person that had fleet experience, regardless of what their rate was, because we didn't have our own SEAL rating at that time. That came along. I was already an officer in 2006 by the time that came along. But uh, but we, we tested in our rating. I can't say that. Uh, and, and then that was another benefit. I knew at least what the equipment looked like. Uh, as far <laughs> right. as uh, what you were testing, there was no SEAL uh, rating test at that time. And, and everything that we did, it didn't really matter advancement-wise. Yeah, some of it helped you got extra points for wards, but you had to test out in your rating. And uh, some of our guys, they didn't even know what the equipment that they were being tested on looked like. They didn't know what it did. And, and at least I had that, you know, and I could probably narrow down a, a four-question um, or, or four questions, at least 50-50. And, uh, and I would, you know, nine times out of 10, I did well on most all of the advancement exams because I could at least know what they were talking about and a little bit about what the equipment did, uh, at least from a ship's perspective. So, so yes, as a leader, whether it be as a chief, a senior chief, and then later as an officer, uh, you you could always tell who had that experience, who didn't. Uh, you could tell who could work well with the submarine crew and the ship's crew and, and uh, who needed a little bit of assistance with it. Uh, so, uh, so it was very valuable. And uh, again, I wouldn't trade it for the world in hindsight. Well, and, and that was another point that I wanted to bring up to you was with this service, I have a question that comes to mind. Do you think that that, because you said you always knew when someone had been in the fleet and stuff later on, but looking back on it, do you think it made you a better operator when you were with special operations? And, and to tack onto that, do you think it made you a better officer because you have seen it from every level of, of the crap jobs that you can get of having to do everything they do. So do you think it puts you in a different mindset? One, as a special operator working with Big Navy, and then two, working as an officer 
with enlisted people? You know, uh, I can't say that it made me a better operator. It okay. definitely made me a better enlisted leader and, and leader as an officer. Uh, you know, and, and it definitely um, uh, gave me the tools that I needed to be able to best communicate with the fleet if we were on a ship, if we were working with air crew, or if we were working on a submarine, you know, uh, or if we were working in a joint environment. You know, like when Iraq and Afghanistan, Somalia, all those places came online after uh, 9-11. You know, all of that, it, it played into all of that. But, but not really as an operator, I can't say, because uh, our trainers is, is what gets you and our training programs and our leaders that, that mentor us along the way uh, gets us to be better operators. But, but definitely leadership. It, it helped me a ton. Well, and I guess what I mean by uh, being a better special operator, just I think being around guys that have, have, you know, been there and done that and seen it from all perspectives, I guess that's what I mean. You understand more why people might complain or why they might be upset where they're at and stuff like that, just because you've seen that life before you were in this other world. Yeah, it, you definitely appreciate uh, you know, I always remember where I come from. Same thing when I went officer. Remember where you come from. Remember when you was an E1, E2, uh, and, and you needed a little bit of extra coaching along the way uh, or counseling along the way. You, you know, so just in remembering where I come from and, and then relating to wherever I'm at and whatever environment that, that I was working in, whether it be joint or whether it be uh, with other Navy units outside of the spec war community. It, it all, uh, it all played for me. And, um, uh, again, I think it was very helpful getting me to where, uh, I got when it was time for me to go do something else. Now being, being a sports person, I'm guessing you never really had any trouble with the physicality of it, whether that be, uh, you know, search and rescue school, uh, Sears school buds. I'm, I'm guessing you didn't. And I've heard you say that it was more mind than physical. So can we talk a little bit about your mind state going into all of those different things, not just necessarily buds? Yeah. You know, you go all the way back to SAR school. I've learned to never judge a book by its cover, you know, never judge a person as far as, uh, your initial perception is what they can and cannot do because nine times out of 10, you probably are going to be surprised. Um, so, so with that, uh, if, in my opinion, and, and this goes with pretty much any uh, special operations commander unit, if you can do your, if you meet the physical requirements to get in, and and they all come with their own uh, PT test and physical requirements that you have to meet, uh, or, or you can't get in. If you can meet that, then it's all mental from there. And uh, like those long programs like BUDS and uh, some of the other spec ops training pipelines, you know, you can't look ahead until when you're finished, when you're on day one or when you hadn't even formed up yet. So I like to take things and I like to break them down into sections or chunks. Like for Hell Week, for example, we started Hell Week, went through a winter Hell Week. Uh, and, and I have to say, if I were to do, if I were to do Hell Week over again, I would want to go through in the summer 
because you you can make me i don't like eight count bodybuilders i don't like chase the rabbits i don't like all these other things that they made us do that was painful and and then definitely hurt but when they had us laying out in that surf and and my swim buddy he was just the opposite he didn't like he would much prefer laying in that surf as cold as it was he was good with it i wasn't i i would i would rather get out and get hammered uh and instead of being laying there uh so uh with that I, I went through that winter hell week and uh that's definitely takes a toll on you mentally even though it's painful uh over time physically you know that cold water does some things to your mind i uh the the long game is definitely mental and in a hell week uh, type scenario uh, when I mean by breaking it down into chunks is uh, we started at like 18.30, 6.30 p.m. on a Sunday. I think we had our first rest on Wednesday morning. We got another couple hours on Wednesday night, and then you get secured from Hell Week uh, midday Friday around 12 or 1 down at the demo pits. Uh, so if somebody catches himself on uh, as soon as you do breakout, and that's what uh, the instructors call it and students call uh, when your hell week starts, call it breakout. Uh, if you're already looking ahead to when that's over, then then you got a long week coming. Right. Uh, so I break it down from chow to chow. You just get to the next chow and then from that chow you eat. Hopefully you get to go inside. Uh, the My crew, we were never inside. We were always out watching the boats, eating MREs. <laughs> So, so we didn't even get that as a break because if you don't win, then you, you come in either last, next to last, or, or whatever, you can bet you're going to be outside. Uh, then you just go from the, to the next chow from there. And then you do that. It, you get fed four times, so that's a saving grace uh, in Hell Week. they got to keep you fed, uh, keep your energy, energy levels up, uh, unlike in a ranger school to where you don't get much sleep and you don't get fed either, really, uh, much anyway. Uh, there you get fed and you're going to get fed four meals a day. So just go four meal, uh, chow to chow, get to that meal and then start worrying about the next meal after that. But don't look at past that and then don't look at it in between. Just get to that next chow. And that's a good way to break down anything that uh, a person would consider something hard and then long is just break it down in segments. Well, you know, you're not the first guy on here that said that they do that meal plan where they go from just breakfast, lunch, dinner, and that, that gets them through everything. Do you think that that has followed you through your whole career and into transition in civilian life where you just take, when you're looking at a project in front of you and you've had some big ones out in front of you, do you just take it in those small little chunks too? Um, it, it depends on uh, when, when I have a lot of increments in between from where I start and to where I want to go, then yes. But it all depends on the situation, what I'm doing, what I'm uh, planning for. It, but if it's a long way out, then chances are yes. And, and then I always will remember and uh, taking it in chunks. Uh, and, and then you got the elephant analogy, but just, just uh, take it one bite at a time, take it in chunks. And then, uh, but that depends on how far out it is. It depends on how many steps is in the process and so forth. Uh, but, but that's always in the back of my head if it's applicable. And uh, same thing with a, a six month deployment or a year deployment. Right. If you go over, and, and then let's face it, some of our, our folks 
not just in the spec ops community, ever since 9-11, they, they've been deploying ever six months, nine, or ever nine months, year, year and a half. They're still doing it to this date, you know? So uh, if you catch yourself on a six month deployment or a year long deployment, and then you start thinking about going home uh, from the day you get there, and instead of breaking it down into segments or chunks or uh, reasonable um, uh, sections, then, then you're doing yourself a huge disfavor. So, so in, on a deployment, if I were to do another trip overseas and it were to last six months or a year, by all means, I would definitely go back to uh, how I break down, things down uh, into smaller pieces and then tackle one piece at a time. Absolutely. Now, mentally, how are you, as you come out of buds and stuff, you're getting ready to go to SEAL Team 3, you're going to be the new guy. How are you, and I, I like to ask this all the way through careers, and you have an exceptionally long career, how are you mentally, physically, and, and be really specific about mentally and physically if there's any kind of injuries as you go to your first team? Well, com coming out of uh, uh, buds, I think I was 22 uh, physically I was good to go, you know, and then, uh, you're, you're probably a little overconfident, uh, about what you can do to be honest with you. We went down our airborne, uh, course and, uh, you know, we definitely didn't, none of us had any, uh, any hard times at all in getting through the, the I think it was what, three weeks at that time, like somewhere up in there, those type of courses. So, so if anything, you know, being young, a little bit overconfident in our abilities um, and uh, not arrogant, I always had it in me to never be uh, looked at or thought of as being arrogant. Uh, so I don't want to go that far. But uh, physically, I was good. There was some guys that had some lower leg problems and uh, so forth. And some of the older guys may have had some back problems that were already bothering them. Uh, you know, because we did have a lot more people come in that was a little bit older at that time uh, than than the pipeline as it is now. Currently, it's completely different. Uh, so, so mentally, same thing. We come out of there, they break you down in buds and then build you back up. And that's not just physically, that's mental, uh, mentally as well. And uh, so we're very confident in ourselves, very confident in our abilities confident in the training that we received, even though, uh, and looking back, it, basic underwater demolition seal training is as basic as it gets in our community. It doesn't get any more basic than that, you know, so how confident we were when, when you look at it from those terms, we were probably a little overconfident, but, um, but, but it's, uh, you know, it, it was a great building block to when we did get to our team, whatever that team may be. In my case, it was Team 3, the training sale. We had several Vietnam vets that was in our, our cadre that uh, trained us the way they were trained and uh, with what they thought we needed from uh, what they witnessed on multiple tours to Vietnam. So I was fortunate uh, at my team. I think we had three of them up there, maybe even four. Uh, and, and most of them had break-in service to where they got out, didn't didn't find happiness with their new line of work. So they came back in one as late as 15 years later, you know, and, and one maybe even a little longer than that. So, uh, so I, you know, we, we took that training to heart. Uh, they were hard on us. Uh, they were rough on us, I guess you could say, but, but it uh, paid dividends in the end. 
when you have stuff like that, when you have these guys come in that were Vietnam era, and I want to talk to you specifically about this. So we're talking 95. You go 7th of December, which was uh, 95. We're kind of in, I guess, what you would call a lull in the military. Um, not really major things going on. There are there are hot spots and things like that, and there is stuff being done, but you come in. So I've heard guys that came in before, uh, you know, the global war on terror, and they said they got through all the string, and then they were worried that they might never put that to use. So when you get there to SEAL Team 3, you've got these Vietnam guys, you've got guys that have seen it. What are we looking at, like rotations, op tempo, uh, and different things like that. Are are you getting work? Are you are you able to get out and become what you did all this training for, or are you just kind of learning to be what you were training to do? Well, um, in looking back at my team three days, and then it was from '95 to um, to I think May of '01, and uh, you know I, I did Bravo platoon back to back to back. Uh, the first platoon in Org Alphas, amphibious readiness groups, we were with 11th Mu, uh, with uh, Colonel Blows from 11th Mu. Uh, we worked with them on the Essex Arc. Uh, and, and we were on, we, that was the mothership, we called it. And then we were on the Cleveland. And uh, during that Org Alpha, our uh, leadership worked it out to where we would just, uh, we rode the ship very little. You know, and not many people complain about that. We would meet the ship and, and basically wherever um, uh, they were heading, we would just fly ahead and meet them there if we were going to ride to the next leg. If not, we would just go a couple of stops ahead of them. So that was very cool. Uh, but um, so you had to work up for that Org Alpha. Uh, but at the time, other than the Org Alpha and Org Bravo, SEAL Team 3 was the Middle East. Southwest Asia team, like SEAL Team 4 on the East Coast was the South America team. And we went away from that. We definitely went away from that after 9-11. But in the early 90s, mid 90s, that's what we were doing. We were Southwest Asia. Uh, That was our primary focus. We even wore desert fatigues, the uh, old desert uniforms. That was our uniform, different than all the other commands. Um, That later went away as well, you know, but... um, so the next platoon, we were a Southwest Asia platoon, and then my third platoon was Southwest Asia. So we were all over the Middle East, uh, with the exception of no one was in Iraq at that time, no one was in Afghanistan at that time, but everywhere else in the Middle East, uh, and, and honestly not many of the stands. Uh, but but uh, everywhere else in the Middle East, that's where my team deployed to, and that's where uh, my two Southwest Asia platoons, and to a degree, my uh, Org Alpha, the first platoon I did, we were doing JSET after JSET, exercise after exercise. So we were going through those, uh, we looked at them as hard workups, and, and those workups were a lot harder than the deployments. We would say that all the time, uh, me and my buddies. And uh, so, so it was a very hard workup to go do FID, or to go do JSATs or to go do exercises. And uh, some people decided they were going to get out and do something else. Others uh, decided they were going to stick it out. And then lo and behold, in 2001, 9-11 uh, happened. You know, and then after that, the military has a whole change. And uh, we're, we're still kind of, uh, well, some units are still seeing op tempo pretty much the same as what they 
saw it right after 9-11 happening. So it hadn't changed much for some uh, in, in their deployments to what you can call hot areas, whether it be Yemen, Somalia, Syria, uh, you know, to name a few. Uh, but um, it was a very hard workup for to conduct exercises and to conduct FID and J sets, if that makes sense. No, it absolutely does. Now, what I want to ask you, though, is, and we're going to get into Yemen in just a minute, but as you're doing this and the Middle East being your area of operation, we're talking six years before 9-11 happens. Are you seeing as what you're doing in your job, are you seeing the work up towards 9-11? And what I mean by that is not the U.S. military or maybe the U.S. military, but more than that, are you seeing terrorism become the level that it's going to become after 9-11? Are you seeing it pop up? Are you seeing it being more radical? And as the time goes on, it gets more and more of an influence. You know, uh, I, I have to say that uh, I've always, maybe not to the scale of 9-11, but I've always, and then maybe you can, I, I contribute this to us being trained by those Vietnam vets and how they were always in our ear. Uh, and, and the way they trained us, honestly, you probably couldn't go out and train uh, a unit today without the trainers getting in trouble or, or uh, you, you know, it just was appropriate during their time, maybe not appropriate with, with their training methods today, you know. Um, you, they didn't want to cut any corners. They wanted to give you as realistic as training as possible, which as a former training officer, that's huge. You know, you can't be afraid of your own shadow and you can't be afraid to, of getting somebody hurt because uh, the military as a whole and, and spec ops in particular, you have to have realistic training or after a 9-11 type scenario, you go into their battle space or you go onto their homeland uh, and, and, and go to battle, you're gonna be on the losing end if you don't have that training realistic training at that to back you up uh, or to fall back on because you are going to fall back on your training if something happens you could go uh and in, in combat as, as you know and, and as many other of your uh guests know things can go from being perfectly normal to not normal at all in the snap of a finger you know and and it could be chaos going from completely a great day to just outright chaos in a, uh, a matter of seconds so, so you're definitely going to fall back on that training. You're going to communicate accordingly and you're going to take care of your, your teammates and they're going to take care of you. Um, but, uh, our workups, uh, back then were all pretty much a year and a half, maybe, uh, a little over, sometimes a little under, depending on what was going on and, and a rotation here or there. But, uh, and in a six, seven month deployment, that's what we had prior to 9 11. Um, and then some units kind of kept that rotation uh, after 9-11, but some units, you know, obviously worked at three months on, nine months off, you know, and, uh, and, and so forth. So, so I guess that depends on your unit and how you're tasked and how the tasking comes down as to how long your workup is, whether you're on call uh, or standby or, or whether you just have a set schedule. You know, it, it, it just depends on where you're at and where you're working at the time. Uh, with that, but but ours was a year and a half workup uh, and and at least six month deployment, and that's what all three of mine was at Team Three. And uh, with that, 
uh, going back to the fleet again, it paid dividends for me again uh, because my platoon that uh, I was I was set to go to SEAL qualification training. We called it actually it was SEAL tactical training at that time, STT. And uh, I was dead set to go to that. And then until you class up, you were doing camp guard. You were going out watching various camps and, and supporting whoever from your team, whatever platoon was out there. Well, not me because of that fleet experience. It just happened to be a radium in this platoon that was forming up as soon as they got off a of lead, uh, needed a radium. In. We were going to be an ARG Alpha. They needed fleet experience. And then I brought all that to them. They snapped me right up. So I went. Instead of doing all that other stuff I just mentioned, I went right into a platoon and uh, started my career off right. And, uh, there, there's a lot of things that I knew that I was very able to carry forward uh, with me, like sky, uh, the, the bridge right under the main bridge. You know, I knew nobody was using that, and, and they gave that to us, to where our guys, instead of setting up the green radios to where you're not going to get a signal anyway because those powerful antennas on the ship's going to knock it down, you know, with, with the little man packs we'd carry, our guys would struggle with that. Our guy, our OIC, he would just go up to Flag Bridge and uh, and at a pre-designated time and, and uh, bandwidth, whether it be HF, UHF, VHF, line of sight, he would just go up, pick up the phone at the pre-designated uh, schedule and then talk to the boss on the other ship. You know, that, that was kind of unheard of uh, back in the mid-90s. We were usually doing that ourselves, but that's just me with that fleet experience uh, and, and knowing who to go talk to, who to make friends with, and they, they literally gave us the space. So uh, we had it made, not just for a planning space, but communicating with our mothership. But So it, it paid dividends time and time again for me, but that's another example of how it came into play later. Yeah, absolutely. I, I guess a more succinct, excuse me, a more succinct question would be, did you see 9-11 on the horizon with everything you were doing in the Middle East? Do you see something like that happening, or do you think it's going to be just business as usual that you've been doing? You know, I, I knew at some point we were going to get hit, and then I go back to not to the scale that 9-11 was where the towers came down, uh, the planes crashing uh, in, in multiple locations. You know, uh, but but I did see something coming. I felt something coming. Uh, obviously, I didn't know what, and then I had no idea as to what the scale was going to be. But uh, you, you know, um, there, there's a lot of bad people in this world, and uh, for the people that think you can make friends with everybody, you know, some people in some locations just don't like who you are and what you stand for. So it's impossible to make friends with everybody. It, 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 some people just are not willing to reciprocate, you know. And um, um, so it's probably at some point, you know, something is going to happen again, you know. And um, I, I hope not, but, but I'm not naive as to think that it's not going to, you know. If, if you look at the current events and, and, and so forth, you know, I'll leave that one at that. But uh, I hope we don't get hit again, but I, I won't be surprised. Well, the reason I ask that is let's talk about Yemen for a minute. Now, you're in Yemen from July to September in July, uh, excuse me, July through September of 2000. Now, 
October of 2000, the USS Cole is attacked. Uh, October 12th, it's attacked. So it's a month after you leave there. I want to know what you saw as the state of Yemen while you were there, because you're there building all the way up to that attack. How is it changing geopolitically? How is it changing with what you guys are doing on the ground? And then after it happens, what are your feelings after just leaving? And then this happens on an attack on something that I'm sure you would be close by to. Um, well, like you mentioned, I had left there uh, very close to when the coal got hit down in the 80s. Uh, I was primarily working out in the mountains out of Hudeida and are uh, uh, in and around the embassy there at Sanaa. Um, Yemen, I'll call it the wild, wild west. You know, it, it was different than than some of the other areas that I had deployed to uh, in the Middle East. Um, you know, we and I was fortunate, we worked with the Navy and the Army there. And, and their, their branches of service is not large, especially within the Spec Ops uh, area. They, they have a small number of troops, uh, whether you're talking Army or Navy. Uh, and, and for the most part, I worked with both of them uh, for that three weeks to a month that we was there. Um, with that, there, there was some things that we saw and then that we observed and there in the, uh, in, in Hudeida especially, that there was a lot of off-limits areas. Um, and, 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 and there was reasons behind those areas being off-limits and there was reasons behind us having the level of security that we did. We couldn't even go run without our security. If we went running, they had to go running or get on a bike or a moped or, or something. Uh, but but we had our restrictions, uh, but there was reasons behind it. So uh, with all of that building up, you could definitely sense and feel something happening. Maybe not there, but there in the region, if nowhere else, uh, you could sense it. Did I think that the coal was going to get hit a month, month and a half, two months later? No. Absolutely not. Uh, but but it did, you know, and um, and, and Aiden wasn't too far south of, of where we were in Hudeida. Uh, my, my sister platoon responded to that, and uh, that operations officer that I told you about that told me to use SAR school as a stepping stone, uh, that, that was at the time Commander Lipholt, by the way, uh, who was the CO of the cult. And uh, that, that man, had a, he was a great leader. He had a lot left in him. And it's, that, is, that was a tragic event that, uh, it, you know, I, I, I wish it wouldn't happen to anybody. And I definitely wish it wouldn't happen to him because he definitely was going to go higher than an 05. You know, he took care of his people. He was a great leader. And, and then he gets hit uh, and, and uh, the side of his boat taken out. But, but he was my operations officer that, that uh, allowed me to go to SAR school, that allowed me to schedule SEER school and, uh, and use that as stepping stones to go to BUDS, and then he left two months in. But, but that was Commander Lipholt that was the CO of the coal when it got hit. And um, I, I, I know he had a lot left in the tank, and um, it, it's too bad. I, I'm very sorry. To, I was very sorry to see that and hear that for anybody and especially him. So with this attack, does it make everything because from what I'm understanding with all the workups and, and everything like that, 
not really seeing anything on that scale. When that happens, does it change your perspective and make it, of course, it's always real to you, but does it change your perspective on what you're doing now? Does it give you a new outlook on the kind of work that you're going to be doing for the rest of your pretty much adult life? You know, I'm, I, I love sporting events, you know, but at the same time, I don't like big crowds. You know, I don't like, uh, you're not really in control as much as you should can be if you're in the middle of a big crowd because you don't really know who's who in that crowd, uh, especially when you're overseas. Um, so in, in the back of my head, I'm always, uh, I always try to be, and I recommend it for everybody, aware of your surroundings. If something doesn't look right, if something doesn't feel right and, and seem right, you know, trust your gut, you know. There are, I, I would probably move on or move away from that area uh, if you're in a location where you get those those feelings um, because something probably is not right you know and that's the same thing overseas when that calm before the storm yeah you, you know it's real calm out you know and you're like man I figured it'd be a lot more people out here and there ain't nobody out here well that's a sign that something probably is about to happen when when usually there's a lot more going on around here, you know. So so treat that as a sign. Don't just say, oh, it's super calm tonight. Everything's chill. You know, it might not be chill for long. So don't drop your guard. Uh, be aware of your uh, surroundings. Don't take the same route, e even here. You know, don't take the same route every day. Do something different, you, you know. Uh, but but just, just be aware. Situational awareness is huge. It's huge here. And it's huge, uh, especially when when you're not around your hometown or or even in Conus, you know, you're you're outside of Conus, Oconus. Uh, then you just just be aware of your surroundings. Uh, don't do the same thing. Don't take the same path. And um, and uh, if, if something feels like it's not right, it probably isn't. Trust your instincts. So. I, I'm guessing you were going into your work like that the entire time. It, it seems like you had that thought the whole time. Did this kind of just reinforce that, though? Oh, absolutely. And, and then when we get to 9-11, obviously even more, you, you know. Um, and, and then and then there's little things that you see overseas uh, with with all the J-sets that we conducted and, and exercises that we conducted with our counterparts in all of these different locations to where we're, we're working. And, you know, I can about name off all those Middle Eastern countries uh, or those countries from the Middle East to where we work. You know, some of those uh, folks that you're working with and that you're training on a daily basis, you can really tell who don't want to, in, in a lot of ways, talk to you or speak to you. And, and I can't say that that never happened. You know, when, when you're talking and debriefing everybody else or briefing everybody as far as what they're going to do and then you're, uh, your post-op briefs or your debriefs, um, you, uh, you you can really see and tell who's paying attention or, or basically who just don't even want to hear what you have to say. Uh, and they're there because they they're have to be there or they wouldn't be. Uh, but, but even with the people we train, you can tell that not everybody would probably have your back if, um, if things were to go bad. Uh, with that unit that you're training and working with, you know, I, I'm not going to name off any units, but there's been several 
I've, I've seen it, you know, I've seen it in, in a country or two to where you're handing out diplomas and certificates at the end and they don't even want to take it. You know, they don't even, they don't want to shake your hand, you know? Um, and it's just, it goes back to my, it reinforces my point that not everybody is your friend and not everybody is going to be your friend. Uh, and then, you know, we're professionals. We're, we're uh, taking note uh, and, and being observant. Uh, but at the same time, and respectful, you know, and not going to make a scene. But at the same time, we've, we've noticed in a lot of cases what is happening and what is going on, you know. And uh, so if we needed to react in any way, we would. And, and, and you can bet we communicate when we see or, or when, when it's something's brought up to the leader's attention uh, that, that some of that is going on. But, but it's happened. It happened to me, and I'm sure it's happened to many other people. Not everybody is uh, your uh, is your friend, and and in some units, like and um, again, I, I'll leave countries out of it. But we were working with the army and the police, and in some of these different countries, uh, the army and the police don't get along, you know, for whatever reason, you know. And then when you're working with both, you can't necessarily work with both at the same time. You can't. Your boss tells you, hey, take both of them out to the range. They'll have fun shooting. You know, that's, that's, you don't want to do that. You don't want to go to the range with two units that do not like each other at all. What are you thinking? Like, oh, they, they'll, they'll like it. You know, no, no, that's not a good idea at all. And, and uh, but, but I, you know, I can't say that bosses probably didn't come up with that brilliant idea uh, when you have two units that just are that against working with each other. You know, they'll go sit 100 yards away to where they don't even have to look at the other unit. Uh, but, but I, I mean, I'm, this has happened. It's, none of this is getting made up. So, um, but uh, I'll, I'll leave the countries out of it on that one. So let me ask you then, because I've said it a lot on this show, and I'm speaking from a law enforcement perspective on this. When you have things that, that bother you or things that, that you see aren't changing, you get jaded. It, it, I think it's a very good word to use. So mentally, you're going into these countries, you're training these people that don't want your certificates, they don't want your diplomas, hell, they don't even really want to work with each other. How do you pass that in your head and keep telling yourself, we're doing the right thing, this is what we need to be doing, when in some cases it's clearly not working? Well, um, when, when, I was, when I was younger and then at my team three days, I was... Uh, my third platoon, I was the LPO. My second platoon, I was an E6. Uh, I, I would help out the LPO any way that I could and manage my departments. And in the first platoon, obviously, I was just a straight-up new guy, you know, to where I would have to, those, those mentors and those leaders that uh, that I followed, that, that I wanted to uh, uh, operate like and so forth, I'd listen to them, and I, I wouldn't hesitate to inform them of something if, especially if they weren't out at the range or if they didn't see what happened on certain things like that, you know enough to where you need to go inform them uh, of this and who it was and, and exactly what happened to where uh, they could relay that up if it's serious enough back up to headquarters. So it all depends on the level that I'm at. Uh, but, but in those days, you know, uh, a lot of money and a lot of resources and and so forth is allocated four star, higher than the four star level, but um, 
from SecDef on down in a lot of cases or the, the chairman on down in a lot of cases. And, uh, you, you know, you, you get signed up for that. You know, it's your job as a professional to go do what, uh, what they have you and task you to do, you know, but, um, as I got more senior and, and, uh, I knew who to talk to outside of my chain of command and, and get things up the chain of command as quick as possible to the right people. You know, I definitely learned that. And I wouldn't hesitate uh, to bring that to the right level uh, in, in hindsight. And and I guess it's seeing things younger like that happen. And um, and, and then, you know, um, and, and then moving it forward or bringing it forward. Uh, I wouldn't hesitate to, to call uh, my higher headquarters, you know, and, and having 15 years enlisted and then, another 15 and some change or 16 and some change as an officer, you know, I had leeway and, and a runway that not everybody would have, you know, uh, you, you know, at that point. So, so that made, I mean, I can't say it made me less afraid, but uh, I'm going to do what I can to take care of the people uh, that I'm working with and, and that we all go home, whatever that takes, you know, that's my, that's my priority. And, and then uh, I definitely understand the task and process and all of that. Uh, but, but, but I'm going to have the ear of whoever I'm working for, wherever it is from the things that I learned in those, uh, my younger days, uh, especially at team three in scenarios like that in the environments that I worked in, in, in all those different countries. Well, let's talk about moving over to, uh, SDV two. Now they were decommissioned for a while. They're back online. Let's talk about you going there. The different change of operation, maybe the different change in op tempo or what's actually happening, because I don't think a lot of people, I think Navy SEALs, a lot of people know about that. I don't think they know about these SDV teams. <laughs> you know, it, it, even in our small community, I mean, active duty wise, we probably still only have like 25, 2700 SEALs on active duty. So very small community um, and, and so forth. Well, there's a lot of our own SEALs that don't know much about the SDV, the SEAL Delivery Vehicle Mini Submersible Program, you know, and uh, there, there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, there's only, for a while there, there was only one team. There was two back in 01 when I was there. Uh, I was at SDV2. Our counterparts out in Hawaii uh, was SDV1. But there's a lot of people that, other than, uh, those guys operate the mini subs or the submersibles. Uh, that that's about all they know, and that's some people in our own community. Uh, so with the, it, it's a distinct mission. It's undersea environment, and um, and and that's where your focus is. And and it's not just as a mission specialist operating in and out of the back of the boat. Uh, it's uh, as a special reconnaissance uh, operator to where you get out of the back of the boat, you go on land and they come back and get you two, three days, four days later, uh, and, and so forth. So uh, I went to, uh, as uh, as was a, it was a requirement, and still a requirement to this day, everybody that goes to an SDV team, um, that I know of anyway, is trained to pilot that boat or the, the mini submersible and navigate that boat. So whether you get seven, to 10 dives in that course and you continue to do that once you get to the SDV team uh, that you know depends on what clause you bring to the table where your focus is what you're better at and and, and uh, 
and the number of pilots and navigators you already have in your task unit or your troop now. Uh, we, we had, I was fortunate in my task unit that I was in in SDB2, we had two of the best pilots in the community that I work with. And, and you're very fortunate to have that. Um, but uh, the snipers uh, and the con guys, the JTACs, and not saying that those calls are not uh, with the people in the front of the boat as well, because some of our guys have all those claws and they're just that good of a pilot during the front of the boat. But definitely the snipers, the comm guys, the JTACs, the, uh, uh, the, the trauma corpsmen, the 18 Delta, and so forth, they're going to be operating out of the back and uh, doing over the beach work and, and, and working in all the environments, whether it be in a mountainous environment, whether it be in the desert, whether it be in the swamp. You know, if the water touches the land, then, then that's a good platform for uh, doing what you need to do, uh, period. Uh, I'll leave that at that. But um, so, so it, it has a lot of reach and, um, and, and you have to be able to work. And then, uh, with the, the SDV that I worked on, uh, we had two in the front and then four in the back. And let me tell you that four, that four in the back, it was cramped. Uh, and, and then, uh, some of those guys had everybody that was six, two or taller, you know, trying to fit in the back with all your gear. And if you were going out and doing a 72 to a 96 hour, SR over the beach in the winter, you know, you can probably imagine how cramped that back of that boat is. And then if you're in there for six hours, seven hours, eight hours, you know, uh, I said that the cold water was very uncomfortable in butts. Uh, and, and I went through winter hell week. I think we formed up on January 3rd. So our hell week was uh, in February. But I have to tell you, when I got to the SDV team, I, I, that's the coldest I've ever been, you know, you're, you're cold. East coast water. Yeah. You're cold. And you, whether you're up in Maine, whether you're somewhere that you're operating, uh, you know, and, and we definitely had a winter workup, you know, all up and down the East coast. So, uh, and, and you're going to be in that water and you're going to be going over the beach. And when you put that, if you, if you, um, if you bury your stuff, well, guess what? When you come back over, you're probably going to unbury it and try to put it on. And if it's straight as a board, you're still going to put it on. You have to. Uh, but you're, you're cold. It's, it's a dark space, totally dark, uh, cramped. And, and then obviously you're wet. So that's four of the uh, four very uncomfortable factors that, that will uh, wreak havoc and, and for long periods of time. So imagine seven hours, eight hours in that environment, uh, in the back of that SDV, you, you know, that's where you got to break it down in maybe five minute chunks for something like that. And, and then, and then you got your, your work that you got to go do. And, and there's only four of you. So you're pulling some, you don't have no platoon, uh, of 16 people or a squad of seven or eight people. You got four of you, you know, and, and you know, that, that's all you got. And if you're out there for 72, 96 hours, uh, you know, um, if you don't pack in the water and that carries a lot of weight, you know, you better have a good water source and water purification system on you. And you better be able to use it if that's what you plan on. I learned a lot. I still carry a lot forward from those SDV days. And uh, it, it's definitely, uh, you know, there's a saying, everybody wants to be a frogman on a sunny day. <laughs> There's definitely a lot of days where that sun don't come out, you know, and uh, you, you still got to do that job. Um, so 
with that, the, you know, buds, buds help, but, but there's only so much prep for it. At, at some point, you just have to deal with it when it comes to the cold, when it comes to, and sometimes you got to shortchange your, your time in the water, or you may have to, as the leader, make a decision, you're going to shortchange your time on land, you know, or, or, or what you bring to where on land. And whether you got any type of terrain that you're going to be humping up uh, or so forth, or whether you can patrol in your dry suit, because if it gets ripped, you know you're in a world of hurt. <laughs> so it's not a good idea. Bad world of hurt. So, so, you know, there's a lot of factors that go into that. But, but there's a lot of things that I learned. And I was in the back of the boat uh, as a sniper and a former comm guy. Uh, and, and that's where all of my work uh, was at that time. And um, before I went into that task unit, I timed it right. I learned to this day, he's one of my, he, he probably is my top mentor. Uh, he taught me a lot. I worked on him as he was a senior chief. I was a chief. Uh, when I showed up to the command there, learned a lot from him. He got redeployed overseas again. So I took over his LCPO SR training not long after I got there. So, so all of my key milestones and uh, key billets was hit. Uh, and, and I was a fortune. I was fortunate in a lot of ways, but but my my past uh, helped me out in some of that. But but timing helped out in some of that as well. To where, you know, I wouldn't trade that time for the world as uncomfortable it, as it was at at times because uh, it, it made me who I am today. All right. So here's the question: In saying all that you just said about SDV and the cold and all that kind of stuff. A lot of people talk about the the blood and the guts and the gore and and some of those stories are okay to hear. I like to hear and I've learned in, you know, 16 years of law enforcement, the funny stories or the worst stories are the best ones to hear. So, thinking back on your SDV days, I want to hear the worst most uncomfortable story that you can remember of operating. You don't have to say where you were operating anything like that. I just want to hear what happened to you and why it sticks in your head to this day? Wow. Um, well, on the SDV, there's, uh, we were working off the submarines. And uh, the submarine commander, he's, uh, you know, they're only going to come in so close. But uh, with that, you, you have your agreement that's in place. And when you'll be back, it's in place. And uh, the commander's probably going to remind you again, you better be back at this time. You know, because we got to come up to where we can pick you up, you know, so you better be there, you know, and they always remind you of that. Well, uh, one of our our ops, we were uh, running a little behind, um, having a little bit of problems with the boat. And um, that's one of those uh, times to where uh, I mentioned you got to suck it up. Uh, and being on the sub, you have we have our weathermen. Um, we they're they're getting all the data, they're getting all the recordings, they're getting all the currents and uh, the tides and so forth. And and we're paying close attention to that. We're taking note of all that. Uh, but we knew that we were going to have a very short period of time on land. And um, long story short, we were running behind. And since we had such a short time on land, there was not going to be enough for a change out. There was not going to be enough time uh, to um, do much of anything other than what we had planned there on the site that we were heading to. And, uh, well, we sucked it up in the water. 
uh, our weatherman told us that uh, at launch depth, we were going to be at X degrees, and we we're like, okay, we can deal with it for the end. But once we get up to cruise altitude, uh, it, it's going to go up into the high 70s. <laughs> it didn't make it anywhere near that. Where we were operating at was uh, those currents were were strong, but uh, what they were doing with that cold water, you know, our 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 weatherman wasn't tracking. And uh, so it, it fed into our decision to suck it up in the water instead of what we had to do on land. And uh, we, we paid the price for it. And then lo and behold, we had the boat issues to where it extended our time. And it's open water column uh, for those boats, by the way, that we were in or those subs. Um, so you're in the open water column. And uh, so you're filling it. it. It was just a very, very long Time. Obviously, we didn't meet our timeline. You know, we got back. You know, the the commander did what he had to do to pick us up. We we planned accordingly from then on. <laughs> but uh, but we sucked it up in the water. So so it was. You know, you, the words don't do it justice. Is how painful that can be, especially when um, when you've been in the water all night. You you know you do your thing. You get back in the water and it gets extended considerably uh you only have so much air you said about the 70 degrees what do you think the the water temperature was that you were working in low 60s maybe high 50s and are you dry suiting it at the time nope we sucked it up on we like i said we had some things that we had to do on land a little bit of terrain and uh we decided that we were gonna suck it up in the water we put a lot of faith into um the data that we had and uh, we paid the price for it. So let me ask you another question to that. You you talked about having a short amount of air, or not a short amount, but a, a limited supply of air. I, I'm guessing you're working off rebreathers and stuff. So what's your time of air that you have going in and coming back out? How much time do you actually have? Well, depending on what you're doing, you got your, you, you got, and then where you're working in and out of, you got your rebreathers, you got your, uh, your open circuit. And then you got your your boat air, uh, I'll call it. Uh, so you have different things, but obviously we were for this scenario that I gave you, we were back in the boat. Uh, so we were working off of our boat air, and uh, uh, with our other rigs that we had on board, uh, obviously there was some air there. But but with the boat air in particular, there's only so much, you know. Right. So uh, I'd just like to point out, too, that that was the problem at the end of Navy SEALs was the submarine wanted <laughs> to leave them because it had to come up to depth to pick them up. So, uh, you know, it, it just keeps showing up in your career. You just mentioned that, but, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> and, and and like you said, the commander says it over and over, you better be here by this time because the sun's coming up and stuff. So, I mean. Yeah. So you move on to Naval Special Warfare Group 3, 2004 to 2006. Now, this is when you're first commissioned, correct? This is when you're changing over into the officer. Well, I went there as a senior chief, EA. Okay. And, uh, and uh, that's when I decided, uh, me and about three or four other of my peers that I was with at SDV, whether we went warrant or whether we went uh, the, uh, the officer route, uh, there was a number of us that uh, – that uh, wanted our commissions at that, that time. So, uh, so yeah, once I got to group three, 
Uh, I spoke to the Commodore about putting in a uh, officer package. I put it in, got selected right away. And then uh, within a year or so, I was putting on, I went from E8 to O1E. Is it a huge shift in your world or do you just keep handling business? Now, of course, you're doing different things, but are you just handling things as normal or are you getting kind of, you know, drinking through a fire hose changing over? Well, um, you know, as a as a young guy all the way through EA, you, you definitely, especially as an LPO, you're working with the AOIC, you're working with the OIC, the platoon commander, troop commander, whatever you want to. Uh, refer to a mass. Uh, so you see what they're doing. You see what, when we're out training at that time is enlisted wise and out jumping, they may be, depending on what admin requirements the officers had, they may be doing something else, you know? And uh, so we would be, whether it be out on the range, out diving, out jumping. Uh, and, and there would be times when we were all together, but but depending on what, what our trips were and how everything shook out schedule wise and uh, depending on how many admin requirements our leaders had to make, you know, there, there's a lot of times they weren't with us. But but we took note of it. Or at least I took note of it. and Many others like me did. And uh, so we saw what they were doing. Uh, we as the LPO, uh, they relied heavily on me. Uh, and then I relied heavily on my LPO. Uh, once I got to the, uh, to the platoon commander or the troop commander positions. Uh, so it's all building blocks. And uh, so for me, going through all of those pay grades and from the time I was LPO, even beyond, and we're small platoons at that point, 16, 17 people, uh, we, um, we see what everybody does. You know, we see what the officers are doing, especially when you're on ARG Alphas. You know, you're up there helping them with the reports uh, and, and they're helping you with what you got and, uh, when they can and so forth. Uh, so, so no, I can't say uh, all I, all it was for me, and it's different with other services, is uh, just putting different collar devices on. I was already in khakis. I just went from a, uh, a senior chief insignia to a, um, to a uh, butter bar. So it's, as you do that as an ensign, and after that, so 2004 to 2006, you're there, but then you go back to a team. You go back to SEAL Team 1 for 2006 to 2008. Now, this is where I would think it would change for you a little bit because now you're going to go back into, you know, 9-11 has happened, the global war on terror is happening. You have a lot of experience, and and you said that you saw what those officers were doing and stuff, but now we're going into Baghdad, Fallujah, Ramadi. You're doing these things as an officer now. So, is it different as you go back into that? And then when you're over there, is it a different environment than you remember as being enlisted over there? Well, that, um, at SEAL Team 1, that was my first time over in Iraq. Um, we had different deployment requirements at SDB 2 from 01 uh, to 04, and then from 04 to 06 at Group 3 with projects and stuff that I worked and managed was just different. So, so at SEAL Team 1, uh, basically, as soon as I got out of my officer training pipeline, I, my team had just deployed to Iraq, and uh, I met them in Baghdad. And, uh, and and from there, toward the end of that deployment, uh, we were out just past the zoo was our location. Well, we, we moved to Fallujah, you know, and then started working in and out of there. Uh, so, but that, that was my first time in Iraq, and then... Um, 
Fallujah was, and Baghdad, it, it was some pretty hot areas at that time. You know, there was a lot going on uh, at that time. Karma over in Fallujah, we were working every night, you know, in, in areas similar in, in, uh, in that area. Um, I, it, it, was, it was a lot going on, I have to say. And uh, so, so without a doubt, it was, uh, it was different for me. But uh, as an ensign showing up to that uh, team, and uh, you know, timing, timing is everything. In the airport uh, in, in Baltimore, there was this other 15, 16 year, he was a year ahead of me, ensign, that was going over to do basically the same thing as I was going to do for team one. He was going to do for team three, and he was an East Coast guy, so I knew of him, but I didn't know him personally. Uh, and, and then, so, so he had his job that he was going to be doing. I had my job to where when we got back from that deployment, I was either going to go to training officer or I was going to go to combat systems officer. Um, and, uh, so, so we took it as I was going to go to training officer at that time. And my thing was to go out to all of these different outstations and, uh, see what was going on there. And, uh, and, and then, uh, Make sure that you take good notes and, and uh, that if, you, if training didn't meet the mark, you know, then let's adjust it accordingly for our next pump because we're coming back uh, a year and a half later, you know, after we got back. Uh, so, so with that, you know, whether it be Baghdad in a number of areas there in and around Baghdad, Fallujah, Karma, Habaniya, Ramadi, um, we were known as the flying ensigns, me and this other ensign, you know, and we knew uh, both of the teams that was over there working. So everywhere we went, we were ex-enlisted guys. We had just got to that point in our officer career. In fact, mine wasn't even two months old. So we had our op gear and then we would show up and they're like, hey, you guys want to go out with us? And we're like, yeah, you know, you bet. You know, so uh, you couldn't have had it any better. As, uh, as two ensigns flying around to all of these different outstations with a lot going on, different, but a lot was going on in each of them. And, uh, you know, we would just go from, uh, from outstation to outstation and, and operating along the way and, and taking notes on everything that we observed and, and talking to the folks that was out there when we got a chance on their training. And then if something didn't meet the mark, recording what that was or, or all the things that fit that criteria and adjust accordingly when we got back. But, but um, initially, it, you know, it was just like operating in our enlisted days. We did the same thing, and it was just, you couldn't have had it any better than that, uh, going from outstation to outstation, operating, and then, um, and, and that was your job, you know. And then, and then by the time all the reports were done, you were off to another outstation. It don't get much better than that as far as getting work in. Well, and, and I agree with you, but I also think that because I knew guys when I was in the Army that were enlisted, then became officers, those seemed to be the best officers to me. One, because they weren't coming there thinking that they knew everything that was going on, like you talked about when you get out of SEAL training and stuff, that you might be a little overconfident. You actually know what you're talking about. You know your limits, you know what you can do, what you can't do, and you know where to go to to find the right answer. 
that makes a huge difference. I think you would agree when you're in there, because if you would have come there as an ensign, I don't think going to all these different outposts, they would have asked you, do you want to go out with this? You'd have been on a whole different planet. No, they, they definitely wouldn't have. It was just knowing the right people, knowing the leaders. I was a senior chief. I think he was uh, uh, either E6 or E7, you know, and um, uh, so so it was definitely who you knew, and we just happened to know everybody, uh, whether it be East or West Coast teams. You know, we had been a while, around a while. But but I, I totally agree with you, and then I go back to something I said earlier is never forget where you come from. And that goes the same for the CEOs and, and uh, all these business leaders, uh, but, but it definitely applies to officers who were at one time enlisted. Don't forget where you come from. Don't forget where you started. Uh, and, uh, and for, you know, I can't say that there, there's not officers that uh, out there that it's their way or the highway. Uh, they know what's best. Uh, you, you know, you can have six snipers telling uh, an officer who is not a sniper, by the way, uh, on where they need their OP set up, their observation post, or uh, their mission support site, or or, or, or whatever you got going on, you, you have your reasoning, you have your training, you have your background that you can fall back on. And then you're telling this guy where, where you want to set up your OPs. You're like, no, I want these over here. You, you know, and you're like, why do you want those over there? Explain that to me. And, and of course, that person can't explain it to you. But you have those type of people. They just want to be in charge. They're the boss. They remind you of the boss. And then that's the officers. And then you, you can just officer enlisted thing aside. Uh, when you have leaders like that, and they're, they're around, you know, they're around in all communities. Uh, and, and there's really no exceptions to that. You have that type of leader. Uh, and, and then some do not get weeded out to where these programs are designed to get rid of people like that. It just, it, they don't catch everybody. Uh, you just have to go on your way. And then once you do get out there, uh, that person's not with you. Do what you know is best. Uh, but, but having that savvy to, uh, work around scenarios like that because they exist. They probably exist in my career. Um, and, um, but, uh, but you have, you, you definitely have those that, now I'm the boss. This is the way we're going to do this. This is where you're going to set up your OPs. This is where you're going to set up your MSS. Go do it now. You know, and, and that, that's not taking care of your people. That's not listening. And, and being a good leader is being a good listener. You know, especially when you don't have the qual, you don't have the experience. You've done one platoon. Some of these guys have done four, five, six, seven, or more, you know, and uh, it, it's very important to listen to your experience. And uh, that especially applies to the officers because, like, in our community, yeah, officers will have your RSO, your range safety officer. They're going to be the range officer in charge. They'll be the dive supervisor. They'll be free fall called. Uh, they might have some advanced, an advanced course or two, an advanced spec ops course, I'll call it or two, but that's about the extent of it. You know, from there, it's learned listening to your experienced leaders and all of those different departments and trades that you have within a SEAL team or an SDV team uh, to where they're not the expert. That's why you got to rely on those experts and listen to those experts, pick their brain and, and what they feel is best and so forth. So, uh, so point being, don't forget where you come from. Um, and, uh, and I have to agree with you at times. And I know some great officers now that was never enlisted uh, and that um, I don't even know of a couple of them that, that has any enemies. And, and that's hard with a long career uh, as, as an officer. 
but they're great leaders. And, and uh, the men and women that work under them know it, and they respect them. And that's not just admin-type environments. That's in combat. And you really see who's who in combat-type environments. You know, you see the good leaders. You see the bad leaders, you know. Um, so, uh, but, but never forget where you come from and where you started and, uh, and, and take care of your people. And, and, but be a good listener while you're at it. Well, and, and I think you proved that point, though, especially when you bring up, like, the dive supervisor. He's not doing anything without that master diver saying that it's good to go. Uh, and, and I found that the best officers and the best command staff in law enforcement are able to listen to the ones down below. I, I completely agree with you. But the question that I have to that is, you have that world of the enlisted where they should be listening to those guys, but now you're an officer. How do you take that officer, whether they be the same rank as you or maybe a higher rank than you, and tell them, this is how this needs to be done and do it without ruffling feathers. Well, uh, the, uh, well, there, there's some people, and, and then, like I said, this is not just officer enlisted and military thing. Some leaders will remind you on a daily basis, even though you completely know who the boss is, they'll remind you or they feel the need to remind you who the boss is. Uh, and there's only so much you're going to be able to do communication wise with somebody that has that type of mentality uh, first. But, you know, I, you know, it don't take me long, especially the junior officers uh, that, that come up through the pipeline and uh, when I was the training officer. And then we're coming up with these scenarios. But the same thing, whether I was an operations officer or other, uh, as a troop commander, you see, you see it. Uh, and, and then it's not just with the new guys. Sometimes it might be your uh, troop commander in the next troop over. Uh, or, or one of the younger officers that's working with you or your XL. Uh, but, but you can pretty much tell, uh, especially when you're the training officer. And I, I was the training LCPO at SDV2, and then I was the training officer at Special Boat Team 22. Um, so uh, when, when you come up with these scenarios, and they're designed, you design those scenarios to test uh, the troop. And then it's not just to test that leader. And then it's figuring out creative ways to separate that leadership, especially if they're doing everything, uh, or if you have a couple of people that are doing everything. Get creative. Figure out ways to make other people that are supposed to be in leadership positions do what they're supposed to be doing as well and test them. And, uh, and then, obviously, evaluate them along the way. So, so with that and getting creative, you see – uh, especially as the scenario gets challenging or when something don't go to plan, how well the officers uh, that are in charge, whether it be the troop commander, whether it's the platoon commander or the uh, third up, you know, you can see when they're not listening to their chief or their senior chief or their master chief. You can see when the chief is not listening to his LPO, you know, and sometimes these LPOs, they're in E6, but they got a lot of experience, you know. Uh, and they run the men, you know, that's who runs the platoons. And that's one of the hardest positions I held was the LPO position. Uh, yeah, we had some challenging folks that I had uh, with, with some of the, the people that was in my platoon. They definitely challenged me uh, as for, in a good way. You know, it, it, it was, uh, it, I learned a lot. Um, we, we had some characters, but, um, but you can see who, is listening, especially when things get tough. And you can see who's not. You can see if somebody wings it, you know, or, or just 
grasp that uh, straws uh, and, and hoping it comes out the best, but uh, nine times out of ten, it probably is not, you know, uh, and then especially if you can, uh, if, if it gets so challenging to where the officer starts placing blank, you know, I, I can't say that I didn't see that. But, but that's not taking care of your people. That's not listening to your experience. You have, I know that you only have one fall. You've only done up one other uh, troop slash deployment before you got here. That person that you're not listening to, I've known him for 10 years, 12 years. He's done six, seven, maybe more, you know, and he, he recommended to you respectfully what you should be doing or the decision that you should make and report back to hire with, and you chose to go a different route. Why? Explain that to me. You know, so, and that's exactly what I would do. But, um, so, so it definitely helped me, especially coming from the enlisted ranks to where when I saw a JO or when I saw uh, a fellow troop commander or platoon commander or XO or even CO, you know, when I was at 30 years, I wouldn't hesitate to tell a CO, I think you're wrong, respectfully, you know, behind, behind closed doors, not in front of nobody, obviously. But, but I wouldn't hesitate. Uh, and, and here's the reasons why I disagree with you. Explain that, you know, and then uh, they may tell you, well, we're going to do this my way. Or they may tell you, you bring up some good points. Thank you. And uh, we're going to change our plan. You know, I, you know, it's hit or miss at what you're going to get. That all depends on the leader and how uh, good of a salesman you are or good at, at uh, convincing him to change his plan you were. But you know, I wouldn't hesitate. And then when I was in Afghanistan uh, and I spent, ended up spending 13 months over there, uh, I advised the director on, on anything that was soft-wise for the four-star. Uh, you know, and I wouldn't hesitate to tell him that, hey, I, I disagree with what we're doing and how we're going about this. And that director was a senior 06, you know, but, um, you know, you know, I had been in country eight months, nine months, ten months for some of those scenarios that uh, pop into my head. But I wouldn't hesitate. Now, not every, I have to caveat that with is you get some officer, uh, and there's some out there that very few, and there's some that are just so smart they'll figure out a creative way to get around it anyway. But but I have to acknowledge that a lot of young officers didn't have the runway that I had or the leeway that I had as being a former senior chief at that point in my career with the background that I had, the qualms that I had to be able to do that, you know, and, and to be able to talk. But to I that think, I think way. you have to point out there, you earned that runway. There's yeah. a huge difference though. And, and I think that it's a good thing that they're not given that runway because you earned it. You have those qualifications. You can speak, uh, you know, smartly to the things that you're talking about i don't think it's a great idea to give them that much leeway or that much runway until they've had it hit them in the face a couple times absolutely and i was just making the point from kind of from both perspectives but but from me and where i was especially well uh, you know I, I can say that all the way back to my chief days um uh as an e78 uh same thing you know uh i i, I felt it was the right thing to do uh, but, but I do acknowledge there's, uh, there's only so much that, uh, when, when a young officer in showing up to a command 
and then uh, if he's not listening to his experience, that's one thing. That's easy to critique, and he's either going to listen or she's going to either listen or not. Um, and uh, But if they don't, maybe one or two more times, uh, give them some uh, advice as a courtesy, you know, or as a friend or as a peer. It depends on uh, where they fall out and where you fall out in that chain of command. Uh, but um, some – they. They're just going to do with whatever their boss tells them, period. You, you know, especially if they're on their first platoon or second platoon uh, and, and just showing up at a command. And I get that. And, and I get that you're going to have to get out if you don't listen to that boss, too, you, you know, in, in the military. I, I know how the military works. So, uh, but, but that's why I bring up that runway is, is I definitely acknowledge the fact that I had runway that others didn't for a number of reasons. And you you hit on a, a couple, but but I don't take that for granted, and I don't take their perspective in, in meeting the boss's intent and uh, whatever their requirements are. Absolutely. There's two more things that I want to talk about your career. 30 years is a lot. I wanted to talk about the boat teams and stuff, but I think we got to get to some other stuff. The one that really stuck out in my head and in reading through all your stuff was Columbia from February to November, 2012, you're in Columbia. And then of course I want to wrap up the career with Afghanistan because there's a lot of questions that, that surround that, but let's go back to Columbia. You're there from February to November of 2012. I don't know why it stuck out so much to me, but I'm trying to figure out what are you doing? Why are you down there and who are you working with? Well, uh, my, my role that I was down there for was I was the AOB Columbia deputy working out of the embassy in Bogota. Uh, but, but I was dual headed. I was also the NSWTE. So all of Naval special warfare that came down there, uh, that was working for the mill group, uh, uh, fell under the NSWTE. So, so I was dual headed working for the army. I was the, their commander's deputy. And then I also had all the Naval Special Warfare guys. And we were working in the riverine environment while I was at SBT-22. You see a picture of the SOC-R, um, uh, the Special Operations Craft Riverine on the wall back there. And uh, uh, with that, though, uh, initially I was down there. Well, I was down there for my deployment, and my deployment just went from six months to nine months because of Summit of Americas, 2012. And that's where all of the South America heads of state, Central America, and uh, some in the Caribbean, the heads of state from all those different nations, uh, uh, in this case, they came down to Cartagena, Colombia. And it probably sticks in your mind so much or, or uh, rings a bell with you. Uh, and a lot of people got in trouble down there uh, in, in, uh, in that period. Uh, in 2012, it was up in Congress on a daily basis as far as what's being done about this. Um, uh, but but it was it was when everybody got in trouble. If you look back at the calendar for uh, early 2012, March, April 2012, uh, when when a lot of people got in trouble there in in Cartagena, and you can read on what what they did. But uh, make a long story short, we were working. Uh, my 24 people that I had for that specific thing that we were there for uh, and protecting all of those heads of state and obviously POTUS uh, and, and being where we needed to be if we needed to be somewhere on our in, in, in and around the water uh, that 
some of his routes was around. I was leading that 24 person element in, in doing uh, that job uh, while our, our president was there. Uh, but make a long story short, um, our training and, and our time speed distance for all those points that we had to be kept getting pushed back, pushed back and pushed back. So, so all of my people were out uh, on the water that night working. And, uh, and it was, it was rough for the secret service. It was rough for some other units that was there because they, they had a lot of people got sent home and there was no replacements that come in. That's probably why it rings a bell. I want to move on to Afghanistan. And the reason I want to kind of wrap up your career with Afghanistan, because you're in, I think you would agree, you are in not only before, but you are not retired until, quote unquote, the end of the global war on terror. Um, And Afghanistan, being so far into your career, the rank that you're at, you're there from January 2016 to January 2017. Now, of course, that's not the end. That's not when we pulled out of there and stuff. But you are very far into Afghanistan's history with this global war on terror. What you're working, and I want to talk about that a little bit. But I want to talk about mainly when you're over there, you are seeing coming to the close of the global war on terror. How does it look different to you over there? Because now you're an officer with all of these years behind you. You have all of this combat experience behind you. And are you seeing cracks in the surface and maybe it not going as bad as it did, but us not taking full advantage of what we could do over there? You know, I mean, you, you can go back from day one of uh, our time in Afghanistan all the way until it, it wrapped up the way it wrapped up. And uh, you, you can see a number of errors there. Uh, but with, uh, with my time over there, and I learned that country very well, you know. Uh, but when I showed up over there, and it was 4 January to, uh, of 2016 to 27 January of uh, 2017, that deployment started out as three months, and that's what it ended up being um, for a number of reasons. But, uh, but with it... Um, Soon after I got there, it was already at six months. And uh, my first job was night chops uh, for basically night chops. And uh, so all of the spec ops uh, work that was come, going on in theater, period, uh, most of it at night, but day or night, all spec ops work that came through that desk. Uh, so, so all the people I had to talk to from um, all of the different units that, that we were working with soft-wise, both uh, from our nation and, uh, and, and then all of our counterparts that was over there and all the NATO forces. Uh, but, but the point is, is you know, e- even at that point in time, I have to say that uh, my 12-hour shifts, a lot of times was 14-hour shifts, 15-hour shifts, 16-hour shifts, depending on what was going on. And uh, I would never know it. That, that it slowed down from, from everything that was coming across my desk and the firefights and uh, basically everything that was going on. But, but I, you, you know, uh, and that was, uh, that was a, I learned a lot. And, and that, uh, that job taught me a lot. Uh, it, it was a very time, it was a time consuming job. Uh, but, 
when it came time for the next leadership to come in with this organization, two-star level, uh, and they worked straight for the four-star level there that where I went to, uh, they came in a lot lighter uh, because they're on, on the books. I think while we were there, it was 4,000 and something. That was our cap for people that was on the books being there. Well, this next unit that came in, two-star command that's in charge of all of the spec ops, they came in uh, a lot lighter than uh, what we were. And, and I thought we were light, and others did as well, uh, especially compared to the earlier years that we were there. And um, so make a long story short, I, I agreed to stay over there, help the task force that came in out. Uh, but I asked to go work over for the four star because all those reports that that person that I relieved uh, worked off of, I'm the one that drafted those. I'm the one that sent those. I'm the one that followed them up with the phone call and, and put all that in. So, so I knew what to expect. And, and then I couldn't have went into a better position to go to the four star uh, commander's uh, place of work uh, and for the following seven months, I'll call it. And uh, to where I would report straight to the deputy, it wouldn't come. Anything that I had really wouldn't come through the uh, through most of the channels. It would come through my channels. I'd go brief the the, uh, the director, and then from there, uh, depending on who we went to talk to, whether it be the two star there or the four star, uh, that that's what we would go do. But that that position I was in as night chops prepared me for that. And uh, but but. To make a long story short, I never would have thought, especially in that chops role, that that it slowed down much because I, I can assure you I was busy. In fact, I never ate at the chow hall uh, while I was in that position. It was always eating when I could at the desk, and then a lot of times the food wasn't touched when it was time to go. Uh, so, so very busy position, or and uh, a lot of responsibility there. But, uh, but I learned a ton, and then it paid dividends to when I went to my next position um, for the four-star. So let's talk about Afghanistan for a minute. With everything that you saw going on, you said you thought that, that we were light when you were in that position and even more light when the next guy was coming in. Yeah. Do you see, when you look at that and see uh, us lightening up or, or making a smaller presence there, what do we do at the end of that to accomplish the mission and was that mission accomplished over there are you asking was the mission accomplished with with uh how everything ended you, you know I, I would have to say no okay there <laughs> without a doubt i'd have to say no um what I, could we have done then to accomplish that mission let's start with that what could we have done to accomplish that mission you know i you know I, we would be here for a while if i won't <laughs> Uh, into that. Um, all, I, what I can tell you uh, is uh, the four star that uh, was running Afghanistan is one of the most, before they came up with their plan, and obviously he wasn't there when the plan was put into effect for various reasons, and uh, but that is one of the most respected men in spec ops that's been around as far as you want to go back. You know, he knows what he's doing. He's very smart. He's a super operator. The people he has around him are super people, super leaders, and super operators. And uh, he's a brilliant man and brilliant leader. 
but but operationally and, and the operator that he was and still probably is, you probably couldn't have had a better person. Uh, so I'll leave it at that, but he wasn't the one that made that decision. But he was obviously in charge of that theater until he left that position. Absolutely. And the reason I ask you that question is with that answer there, once again, we go back to what we've talked about over and over in this conversation, listening to your people on the ground, listening to your people that know what's going on and what needs to be done. You would agree was not done at the end there. It's not funny. I'm not laughing. I mean, cause no, the, I get it. I've lost so many people in that country, you know, friends, teammates, uh, and, and so forth that gave it their all and, and they didn't come back home. You, you know, it's, it's sad. It's sad to see something ended. And then all things uh, are going to probably come to an end at some point, you know, but, but there's a smart way of, of uh, ending things and, and in making sure that all of your, uh, your T's are crossed and your I's dotted, you, you know, I mean, that's old to uh, that people that, that are still working there and that have sacrificed so much, you know, and, and sacrificed it all. It is what it is at this point, but uh, I'll go back to the four star that was there. It was, was a brilliant, brilliant leader and, and one of the most respected men in all the spec ops. So let me ask you something, and it's kind of a philosophical question about it. When you look at that and, and I look at it from, from my perspective in law enforcement, does this ever go away? Because this happens time and time and time again, where we come to the end or we come to a major operation and we don't listen to the people that can give us the information for whatever reason, whether that be like we talked about before, I'm the boss, we're going to do it my way. I think I know better, whatever it is. Does this ever go away? And how does this continue to hurt not only the special operations community, but military first responders and law enforcement? You know, I mean, again, we're talking about the military here, but you, whether you're talking Fortune 50 company or just in the business world, the leadership and how they interact and uh, listen to their people and take care of their people, you know, each scenario is different. But the bottom line is you, you have to do things right and, and you have to take care of people. And uh, if you want to see some of the repercussions about um, a lot of the decisions, I mean, look at uh, our recruiting levels right now and, and how low our recruiting levels are. Okay. Uh, you pick a service, pick one. It, it doesn't matter. And, and then some numbers are as bad as they were. I was born in 1972 and we know what was going on in 1972. You know, uh, the military wasn't that popular during that time period. Uh, the recruiting was horrible during that time period. These numbers right now uh, are compare across the board to 1972. Well, there's reasons for that. I'll, I'll leave it for the audience to figure out what those reasons are. But um, but there's well, reasons. Can you for speak it. to that at all, though? I would really like to hear from you. You have a ton of experience. You better than a lot of people can speak to that. Why is that? Why are we so, what has changed so much that we're down these numbers? Because that's an insane number that we're at right now. And we're seeing the same thing in law enforcement. We're down tons and tons, 
But what is it that we're doing wrong that are dropping these numbers? I, I mean, the focus. I mean, you, you got to, as a military, there are certain things that you have to focus on that you should consider your priorities. And, um, and, and there, there's a lot of good military leaders that uh, help develop those priorities or, or validate those priorities. Um, and, and so forth, but um, you know, it's it's a political game. It's it's uh, in a lot of ways, and you can't get around that. You, whatever side of the aisle people are on, uh, it, it's it's uh, you, you know, you got your checks and balances that are in place for the big three. Well, I mean, there it's a the leadership. They more, are more of politicians that, than they are of service members. You know, and then uh, general officers or flag officers, if you want to go there. You know, they're, they're more so a politician now. You know, so that's, that's, that's half of it, you know. And then that goes back to, uh, well, that goes into a lot of things. But um, obviously, if they don't do what their boss is telling them to do and what he wants them to do, what do you think happens there? And uh, But, you know, the other side of that is... Uh, I don't know. It's a, it's a political game right now. And, uh, it's, it's no longer just the big three. There's checks and balances or there's supposed to be checks and balances. I should say for those big three, uh, it's designed to where there is, uh, well, there's really no checks and balances for, um, the, uh, the leaders that, uh, uh, are where they're at. Let's, let's face it. If, if you're, if you're coming up for a star, whether it's Navy or Army, and, and you're not on the home team, whatever that home, well, <laughs> if you're not on the home team, do you think you're going to get a star? Absolutely not. Unless you, unless you have hit, uh, hit it very, very well, you know, or your true beliefs very, very well. If you're not on the home team and you're coming up for a star, and then all these people that are making decisions are two-star, three-star, four-star, um, do you think you're going to get that star A? And then B, if you do get lucky and get that star, how long are you going to be around? Uh, so, so it's a political game right now to where um, it, it's uh, impacting a lot of decisions. And um, when, when you talk about a scenario or what happened in Afghanistan, that, that's a tragedy. Um, I, that's a tragedy. And uh, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears there. A lot of, lot of uh, lost lives there. Great people, great operators. And, uh, and we exited the way we did, you know. Uh, and I'm, I'm good with everything coming to an end. It's just ending it the right way, you know, bringing everybody home that, that, that is over there, that you brought over back. Bring them back. You know, and, uh, and and be successful at whatever you set out to do. But no, I mean, it, they're, they're so are recruiting. You know, and then if if they whatever publish the uh, the numbers on retention, uh, take a look at the retention numbers. Take a look at what's happening to the guards numbers, and and how many people are getting out left and right. And and but the bad thing is is. Uh, it's not just you and I that sees this. This is people around the world that sees what is going on. Uh, but I haven't seen too many 
without it being close hold numbers uh, per se. I haven't seen too many uh, numbers get out on, on what the retention levels of small communities like the one I came from looks like, you know, but uh, I, I can tell you there's a lot of people that are wanting to do something else for a lot of reasons. And I would like to bring into that this woke culture. And, and I want to bring up, I bring that up because just recently in the news within the past week, we have, and, and I thought about it when you said you had these Vietnam trainers and these guys that were running you through the scenarios and what they did then might not work now. And I would even go back to the nineties when I went in stuff that they did then couldn't happen now or wouldn't happen now. You have Navy SEAL instructors getting in trouble because they thought that the training was too harsh. I think you better once again than a lot of people can speak to. There's a reason it's harsh training. There's a reason that you're putting these people through the scenarios and the situations that you're putting them through. Without a doubt. And, and, and if, you, if you don't make that training and, 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 you're, and you're constantly tweaking it from what you learn uh, uh, in combat and what you learn overseas, sometimes it's what you learn in, in workups and uh, with the innovation and technologies out, that's out there that wasn't there years ago, but that's there now. It, it may help the leadership out and uh, it, it may help you out equipment wise, but just taking constantly, I, I'm real big on continuous learning and I'm real big on continuous improvement. And, uh, but uh, from 01 on, uh, from all this data we was getting back from working in the mountains of Afghanistan or uh, working out in the desert, you know, and uh, working at altitude, Whatever. Initially, we didn't have the data, but we tweaked and we tweaked our training. We tweaked our locations. Uh, we tried to make it as realistic with what is actually going on in all of these areas. If it's something going on in Yemen, uh, then if we had people going over in Yemen, then that was incorporated. But if it was techniques and stuff that the other um, areas of the world and, and the people that occupy those areas, uh, are using or could possibly use, then it was training for all. But it was definitely training for the people that was going to that area to where we're learning what these TTPs are or whatever adversary or counterparts or uh, uh, that you may be going up against. Uh, but but you, you have to make that training as realistic as possible. Uh, obviously, all your risk assessments are done. Uh, all, all of your training signed off on by the boss, uh, whatever level that may be that you're working. And uh, your control measures in place, but it is as realistic as possible. And there's a fine line that you can't cross, but you have to get as close to that line as you can. Uh, or you risk people going over to an environment that is still hot and has been hot for a long time. And, and then people don't come home. That's what you risk. And then uh, and if that training is not realistic, or if you got somebody, and, and I have to say that these people exist, to where they come to a command in, in the military, a lot of your officers, they'll come in for two years and they're gone. You know, so they want to come in, they want to get that two years, not all of them, but some of them, they want to come in unscathed or, or get all of their milestone and all their checkoffs done and get out of their unscathed and go on to their next milestone to where they can get their next promotion and then go from there. Uh, but all they're worried about, every decision that they make, is how it looks on them and how it looks to, uh, as to get 
to that next milestone and Absolutely. then beyond. And then for the ones that have scars in their eyes, it's even worse. You know, and you can all you can generally tell all the people that have scars in their eyes, whether they do or don't, or they don't recognize it or not, you can tell. There there's some people that, that uh really don't want that training officer to train uh, as realistic as possible because something bad could happen on their watch. You know, that training officer, if that happens, or that training LCPO, if and when that happens, has to be able to be creative if necessary and convince that boss that we're making a huge mistake. Uh, and here's what's going to happen when these people leave and go to on their deployment uh, or next command and then goes on deployment there. But, but they're particularly concerned with where they're at and then the deployments that's going to be done under them. But it, it's huge. And and you can only do that, not just – and then if the training is, is uh, the same every year, that's not what I'm saying either. You're, you're uh, tweaking that training and maybe even on a daily basis for all of this stuff that you're getting back from theater and all of those areas that you're operating in worldwide. You're getting all that data in and you're adjusting accordingly. And, and then the training officers have to stay up on that, you know, because the, the, the enemy's TTPs change just like our TTPs change. But that realistic training, it's huge. And, and, and if you're, you shouldn't be a training officer if you're not going to be uh, training your personnel as hazardous as it may be. You know, you may be in your uncomfortable zone a couple uh, times or on a nightly basis, depending on what you're doing. But it, you have to do that for your people or you're putting them in harm's way without the tools and resources uh, that they need to survive and bring everybody back. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, and, and I think we're seeing it a lot more over and over. And I, I don't know where that, that, that switch was flipped to where I I'm sure it's always been there, but I feel like it's a lot more present these days with people trying to get into those positions of power doing just whatever needs to be done to get into that position, not necessarily learning that position. Let's move on to your retirement. 31 years you get out. Do you have any trouble at all transitioning from being a soldier every day and seeing everything you did to being Joe Citizen. I mean, the, the transition is, uh, is is different for everybody. You know, it, it really is, and there's no really there's no real cookie cutter approach to it, or or one size fits all. Uh, it is different, and uh, for me, you know, I I had a blast my 31 year, and and then honestly, I'm still looking for the right fit. Uh, for, for me, for my family, for the next employer, something that it's not really work if you have fun going to work every day and, and you're enjoying it and everybody else's morale is in your uh, your workspace or your business or organization. If morale sky high, then that's not really work. But um, in, in finding that right fit, um, it, it's challenging and it can be hard. And, and then there's so many lessons learned, whether it be from my own lessons that I've learned or whether it be from my friends that I talk to. I try to help out veterans, whether they're communicating with the VA, trying to get their disability rating, whether they're preparing for their next job, whether they've got a work-life balance that they're trying to massage. Sometimes I'm a better coach than I am for uh, making sure I do it to, for myself, if that makes sense. Uh, but, but I enjoy helping people. I enjoy talking to people, I get, whether it be people I work with or uh, just friends of friends, I get uh, a lot of 
phone calls, doing podcasts like yours. I'm sure my phone with one of your listeners uh, be listening and they'll get my contact info and they may have some questions or uh, want me to dive deeper in a topic. Uh, but the point there is that I try to help everybody, but it's different for everybody. And uh, some things that I took for granted uh, or little things like you, you get this unbelievable offer, like when you work with a startup. And startups can be good, especially if somebody has a nest egg uh, or a lot of savings uh, and, and they're well set up and they can afford a year or afford a year and a half or, or two years uh, to where they're not making much. But the sky's the limit as far as once that startup company gets up and running. But uh, and, and then a lot of times you'll get these startup companies or these people with high hopes and so forth. They say, hey, gross profit, I'll give you 25 percent. Uh, a gross profit of uh, what we bring in. That sounds like a really good deal. However, if it takes that company a year or two years right. to get up to running and, and you don't have any salary, it's all based off of commission. That 25% is not doing anything for you. Yeah, it's promising. You know, yeah, uh, the other company or companies that this individual or individuals are running are very successful. So this one will too, you know. You know, especially if they're wanting to lean out that company or organization and uh, uh, that 25 percent that is not so good at that point. So so it can be great, it, you know, but um, things like that uh, can be over easily overlooked. And then uh, when when a person gets two months, three months, four months into something like that, if they don't have uh, the savings and, and the nest egg to fall back on, that could be huge. You combine that with somebody that has done multiple tours to Iraq, multiple tours to Afghanistan, and for whatever reason, they thought that they were going to be taken care of for the VA. And lo and behold, they get their rating back, and it's half or three quarters uh, worse than what they initially expected and was advised that they were going to get going in. And, and then you combine that with the crushing defeat of this promising job, 25% of gross profit, uh, you're, you're going to make annually, you know, and, and you're, you're now making 25% of what you're expected as far as your uh, disability, and that's all the income, and you, yet you got a family to take care of. So, so I can go on and on, and uh, but but veterans in transition is is huge, and then uh, with that, it's so much more than just transitioning out of the, the military. It's uh, you know, I'll call it just people transitioning back from combat deployments. They've been running hard for 15, 10, 15, 20, 20 plus years, and they're still running hard to this day. But they've seen some things overseas to where, uh, you know, they're not right or, or something's just not right up here. They, they got a heavy heart or they lost a couple of people, you know, and then sometimes it's just wrong place, wrong time. Uh, sometimes it may be a bad call or a bad decision or uh, something your spidey senses was going off and you decided to do it anyway. And, and people didn't come home. So, so the point there is, is uh, there's no cookie cutter approach. This veterans in transition thing to where uh, I, I try to help out people, if whether it's getting them into the right program that is right for them and their situation and their family. And uh, the problem there is there's so many programs. Well, there's a lot of programs out, but I can't tell you that a lot of people know about all the programs that are out there that can help them, whether they're coming back with some issues or mental issues that they need to work on from overseas. 
uh, prior to getting back into their community and going home to their family after a very hard deployment. Uh, and, and then if their, their bosses don't know those people or if uh, they're not in that next group to go out and deploy for the bosses, uh, they may not be concerned with them. And then lo and behold, they get out two months later, you know, and then these people are out on their own. So, so you can go on and on with veterans in transition as far as uh, the, the big picture is and, and, and trying to do better and getting people to the right program that's best for them, their family, their situation. But there, it, it's hit or miss as to whether leaders even know about these programs uh, to where these people are getting out. Officers are usually taken somewhat good care of. Senior enlisted are usually taken care of. For the most part, there's gaps and seams in both. But, uh, but you take these infantry soldiers that's done five years, six years, seven years that get out, they come back with like a month left or two months left in service, which you're not even supposed to be able to do, and they get out two months later. Uh, they don't have all their paperwork in line for going and dealing with the VA. They get shortchanged there. You can just see how that bad situation just snowballs and gets worse and worse. So I, I, I work with a lot of people or try to work with a lot of people. Uh, I'll continue to do that even when I find my next uh, or the right fit for me, my family, and, and the new employer. Um, and my, my network, is, I have a, I'm proud of my network. It's a powerful network. So if I can help out in any way, I, I try to, you know, and, and sometimes it's out of my control other than pointing people in the right direction, but uh, it, it's worth a shot if somebody needs help. So that's where I'm at today. So let me ask you, we, we talked about your father traveling a lot when you were a kid. We didn't really talk about your family, but 31 years, you were traveling a lot. You were gone a lot, whether that was certifications, deployments, combat, whatever it may be. The questions that I have for your retirement are, what mistakes did you make as you leaving the service? And what mistakes did you make or maybe the right choices that you made with your family getting out? I'm better at, at coaching others, especially when I was senior enlisted or as an officer. And, and then I would pay attention to these kind of things. You, you've seen my calls and, and so forth. And most all, most all of those calls happened while I was enlisted. Uh, and, and then it was a workup. It was schools and so forth. And any off time that I had, uh, workup for deployment, which was a year and a half. And you can't really miss those key blocks of training. You can't really miss without a very good excuse any box of training. And then deployment. And that cycle was, uh, I repeated that uh, for most all of my career. I honestly traveled so much outside of those schools. And, and, and then I continued all the way through uh, until the day I left. I mentioned my Afghanistan was three months at the start. It ended up being 13 months. Um, out of all the people that I've been fortunate to work around and uh, work with, uh, and then these two are officers, and they're very good officers uh, in my community, highly respected officers at that, uh, that has been as close to a work-life balance of 50-50 to where they didn't cheat their work and they didn't cheat their home. Uh, but but you, I can definitely count the people that was that successful. It's probably only those two. Um, and definitely under five. Uh, as far as getting that work-life balance is close to 50-50 without cheating one side or the other. Usually a person, at least in our community, with that op-tempo that we had even before 9-11, but especially after 9-11, all the way until I got out, 
um, the work is always there. Um, but but when you have a work-life balance of, of 90-10, and, and that's just not right either way, you know. And um, it, it, so so with that, uh, and, and then and learning from some of my mistakes and, and seeing where I went wrong, and I'm very thankful that I still have my family with me. Not everybody's so lucky, but I'm, I'm thankful. Uh, but there's so many things. Uh, your My daughter, she's already uh, in college right now. My youngest daughter is already in college right now. Uh, so, so much I missed. And uh, you, you, you can't be a, a good operator, good husband, good father, good person, and, and, and then have a 90-10% ratio there, whether, whether you're in the favor of work or whether you're in the favor of the family. That's, you're cheating one side or the other uh, there big time. Um, but, but I made it a point to pay close attention to all the people that I worked around, and, and it didn't take me much to spot somebody that was working a, a very large number on one side or the other or that 50-50 split without cheating uh, either side. Um, but but if I, you know, I, 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 and I always told uh, all the people I've talked to, and it's been a good number, that at the end of the day, even as as small as communities as we are and were, um, 2,700 active duty, uh, it's probably less than that now with the people getting out. You're a number, and your number is up. The the Navy, everybody's replaceable, let's face it. I don't care what position you're talking about. Everybody at every level is replaceable, and at some point, you're going to be replaced. Your number's up. Do uh, you think the Army is going to recognize when one person gets out, uh, out of all the people that are serving in the Army, and the same thing with the Navy? But it applies to even in our community as small as ours is, and, and others, some are even smaller. When your number's up, what you have left is your friends, your teammates. Yeah, we have social media that's present now that it aids you in, in keeping in contact with your swim buddies, your teammates, your close friends, and all these places that you work, whether it be CONUS or OCONUS overseas, and some of the friends you met with your counterparts overseas. Uh, but but you have your friends, your family, and uh and you got your memories, you know, that's it. But your number is up other than that. And and when you get out in the middle of West Texas or when you get out in the middle of, of nowhere and those people are not around and, and, and you don't have that swim buddy to go talk to or that confidant to go talk to and pick their brain or just share that, hey, I'm having a problem right now uh, or I'm, uh, I'm struggling right now. I, I'm not where I need to be for whatever reason right now. Your Warriors and Whiskey logo that you have up there. That's one of the reasons the three founders who are all uh, military or veterans now uh, came up with that program is to help out in areas like this, by the way, and in, uh, in, in still providing an environment to where you can get together as a first responder, as a military service member, as a veteran, families and friends of those, uh, all of the above can join that Warriors and Whiskey. But bringing people into work Hopefully, if you know somebody well enough and somebody were to have a problem, if you didn't have events like that, you probably never even know until it's too late that the person was struggling. And, and maybe it's something as simple. You go to one of these events that the girlfriend or the wife says something that, yeah, Johnny, he's just not doing well right now. Uh, he, 
he, he was going to have this high paying job and something fell through at the last second and, and, and so forth. But, and, and he's taking it hard, real hard, you know, but, but if you didn't have that event, you would never know that. Uh, so we're just trying to come up with creative ways. Warriors and whiskey, veterans, whiskey club, veterans, cigar club is all just one of those means to do that, uh, to get people together, have fun while you're doing it. Uh, tell your sea stories, comment stories, war stories, and so forth. But at the same time, hopefully something gets brought to your attention like that. Or uh, there's a family member or a girlfriend or a wife or, or husband that says, hey, I may need you to help here in a week or so. Uh, we're, we're going through this right now. That, that transition is, is just different from everybody, that work-life balance. And, and that applies, yeah, it applies in the military, but it applies in, in, uh, in whatever job. A person's doing and, and try to, to not cheat either side do your best uh, within the time constraints that you have uh, for both to to not shortchange and keep it in your head it wasn't even in my head at first you know I was just trying to do well in my new community that I was a part of thankful that I was there and having fun you know and uh, but but it's there now you know and uh, I, I, I look for that now in, in trying to help people in the future uh, turn it back over to you. Let's talk about this Warriors and Whiskey. First off, uh, there's a Veterans Whiskey Club, Veterans Cigar Club, and then the Warriors and Whiskey Club. Let's talk about favorite whiskey first off. Well, I like bourbon. And then with the bourbon, I, I like Colonel Taylor and uh, the small batch. That's probably my go-to. It's not too expensive. You got some, You got some high-quality expensive bourbon out there. Of course, I won't turn that down, but uh for something i'll drink regularly do you have a favorite cigar you know i'm not the the biggest the cuban cigars is what uh my friends would always ask for depending on where i was going but um <laughs> i'm not listen you know, don't incriminate yourself in any form or fashion the uh I, i'm not the biggest cigar fan to be honest with you i know it goes well with certain uh whiskeys and so forth and uh cognacs and so forth but um i'm not the biggest fan and uh i, I will stay away from it when i can but yeah we got the warriors and whiskey club veterans whiskey club and veteran cigar club so let's talk about uh what they're doing um they are working a couple projects this warriors and whiskey now one of the programs they're doing right now for service dogs is canines for warriors program um, where they're connecting service members or veterans with actual service dogs. Why is that such an important thing to do these days? Well, that's that's part of uh, and then that's just one of the nonprofits. And right. uh, these ambassadors, I think we have uh, for all of the clubs, the ambassadors, there's probably, what, 75, 76. The number's growing. We're expanding uh, in the city and state. And uh, probably uh, close to most of the audience, uh, if not yet, soon. So with the Veterans Whiskey Club and the Veterans Cigar Club, that's veterans or service members uh, can join those clubs. Uh, with the Warriors and Whiskey Club, that's veterans, service members, families of both, and then uh, first responders and families uh, of first responders that uh, can join the Warriors and Whiskey Club. Uh, so with those three whiskey clubs, you got your ambassadors that are charged with, in their area, and I'm for Pensacola here, the ambassador for Pensacola, in uh, setting up events um, to where, uh, whether it's a local whiskey establishment or out in the middle of a park or a field, 
uh, to where or at a fair or wherever you can set up an event at, bringing people together, get as many people as you can uh, that fit that criteria, and anybody's welcome to come out to the events, and, and then have fun and uh, tell your stories and so forth. And depending on the negotiation skills of those ambassadors and so forth, say you're holding an event at your local whiskey club, and uh, that uh, if somebody is a member of these clubs and they come with a coin, maybe you can get them in free, or they drink for the three or four hours that you have the place reserved uh, for half off uh, or, or so forth. Uh, maybe you can uh, get 50% or, or 20% of the gross profit for that three to four hour period, go to canines and warriors and support their great cause that they have. Uh, so uh, the Navy SEAL Foundation, uh, they're constantly looking uh, at all of these nonprofit organizations that are doing great work uh, and, and expanding. Uh, we're looking to expand and, and uh, we will, but uh, depending on what can be negotiated and, and how much can be uh, uh, sent over to those orgs for great causes, uh, depends on how many people show up to the events and where you hold them, how well they're planned and so forth. And that's the ambassador's role uh, and uh, within all of the members for your local area. But the sky's the limit and you can do the same type of communication, have the same communications rather with the local whiskey stores and so forth where when a member of the club, they come in with a coin or a sticker or, or whatever, they get a discount on by 10%, 15% and so forth. So the size of limit, and uh, but uh, a lot of the majority, wherever you set up the events, uh, will go to a good cause, uh, whether it's Canines for Warriors, uh, organizations such as the Navy SEAL Foundation, uh, Commit Foundation, and so forth. I'm just throwing a couple of them out there, not saying that they're members, uh, but maybe one day. All right, so let's talk about anything else that you have on the horizon, because I know at, at one point there was talk about a TV show and things like that. Is that still in the works? No, the uh, timeline, the veterans in transition and everything that was happening there, whether veterans coming back with uh, needing to get into a program like the Honor Foundation or getting to, uh, they, they come back and they require a service animal uh, or they require some type of treatment where you get them out in nature uh, you get your big surfers back that, that like the water. The water relaxes them. Uh, they had a hard deployment. They go out and, uh, with one more wave and then do surf therapy. Um, and, and, and these programs are not one size fits all. It's finding the program that's right for that individual, their needs, their family, their situation. And, um, and obviously there's a long uh, trail of things that probably led up to the person needing that type of treatment. But you have all of these programs and you have all of these people uh, that, that are doing great work for these organizations. Uh, and so what my, one of my main goals through social media, LinkedIn, um, uh, Facebook, and, and word of mouth probably more than any of them, is, uh, is getting people to the, the program that best fits their needs and requirements. Uh, and, um, and, and when I still have people or I still have friends in leadership positions at the commands that I were a part of uh, and talking to them. And when I do, not calling them to talk about this kind of stuff, but, oh, by the way, do you, do you, or do you, are you aware of, of these five programs that are in your area that offer this for your service member? And nine times out of 10, there's a good chance that they may not even be aware that that program exists. 
you know, and uh, so I'll share literature with them like that. So, so everything that minus the TV show that veterans and transition set out to do, whether it be a service member getting out, whether they serve five years or 40, that's still there. The work is still being done. The, the timeline just did not line up between what the, uh, what the leadership out in uh, Hollywood wanted and what the nonprofit schedule was wanting to do and, and, and so forth. So, so there was a lot that went into pushing that back. So, so right now, it's, it's still on as far as helping out any way possible with the Veterans in Transition, but the TV show is uh, not going to happen this fall. Well, that's a good way to kind of end this. Let's talk about everywhere that someone can get a hold of you, everywhere that someone can look into your Vets in Transition with the help, with the Warriors and Whiskey. Let's just go down the list of everywhere people can find you. Well, um, I I sent you my uh, Facebook link, my LinkedIn link. I'm on Instagram. I don't don't follow that, and uh, I'm not as diligent on that uh, platform. Uh, But I still have an account there. Obviously, my email address, uh, feel free to share that with your audience. And then you have my cell phone number as well. Uh, but, but all of those social media platforms, uh, I, I love to help people. I love to help out where I can, when I can. Uh, and, and that's not just for service members and, and uh, veterans. It's for anybody that needs help that I'm in a position to assist and if it's all for advice or uh, so forth that that may help somebody too. Feel free to share everything that I sent via email, and then but I can be reached at, at, via all of those different platforms. And- well, Tim, you have an amazing story. Thirty-one years is so long, and I feel like we could go about six more hours on the stuff that you've done, the stuff that you're doing right now, and the stuff that you have planned for in the future. But I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, uh, telling your story, and and getting the word out that you're here to help. Guys, I think that's going to be it for tonight. Now, remember, if you want more of me, you can always find me on a couple places. You can find me on Instagram at the DTD underscore podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast. And you can find me on YouTube where all these conversations are in video form at the DTD podcast. Don't forget, though, the one-stop shop, dtdpodcast.net. That's going to be everywhere that you're going to find for this show. Audio, video, pictures of Tim, pictures of his career. Find out all of his links, and then you can go through the catalog of other shows that are on here. Also, don't forget warriorsandwhiskey.com. That's warriorsandwhiskey.com. Help get them the word out all over. They're doing great things for veterans in transition and veterans in general. Last but not least, don't forget our sponsor, Police Coffee at policecoffee.com. You know they're an officer-owned business. You know they're dedicated to crafting the finest coffees and blends. And you know they're shipped as soon as they're made to provide you with the freshest coffee possible. Each batch is roasted fresh by people who knows what it means to stay vigilant. And their specialty coffees don't miss out when one drop of flavor is concerned. Their coffee's some of the best you'll find. But it also serves an important cause, and we talk about it every week. 50% of their profits go towards to helping family members of police officers who fell in the line of duty. And when you go to policecoffee.com, put in DJK10, you get 10% off your order. Guys, thanks so much for stopping by, hearing this amazing story of 31 years of service to this country. Thank you, Tim. That's Tim. I'm DJ. This has been the show. We'll catch you guys on the next one. See you later.